This episode of Converge with my guest Charles Lee at Ideation is sponsored by WeaveWriter. For more information, check out WeaveWriter.com. Converge is my chance to connect with creatives who make really interesting things. And when they can, profit from those things, often in ways that might surprise you. My background as a photographer and author gets me in conversations with visual storytellers and writers, but also musicians, actors, business and thought leaders, basically people who work very hard, not just to make a buck, but also to make a point. The invitation is to understand a little more of the context that surrounds their work, and hopefully discover a fresh perspective that might inspire something new around the value you're making in the world. Everywhere I go, I seem to run into folks who tell me they have great ideas. In fact, I'm one of those people. I think I'm an idea guy. The challenge I have, though, and I wonder if you can relate, are those moments, you know, those 2 a.m. on a Tuesday kind of moments where you go, I have the best idea ever. And all it takes is a quick Google search to discover that your idea might be good, but someone else had it like two years ago. And they not only had it, but did something about it. And now they're gazillionaires and you just feel like you got left behind. That's not only a frustrating experience, it actually can be debilitating and unnecessary. Because oftentimes, good ideas can be tweaked, turned, developed, cajoled, taken to new places and surprising places. If only you'll have the creativity and the courage to go there. And sometimes, if you can get some help along the way. Well, my guest today is Charles Lee. Charles is someone who does just that. He's the chief idea maker at Ideation. He's also somebody who doesn't just write great books and speak at major conferences and inspire from up front. He's the kind of person that if you had coffee with him, which I had a chance to have, I, I think you'll find that he's the kind of person that helps you find hope, helps you see a new path for places where you might have felt discouraged and might even give you the kind of courage to go do something new. It's to really hone in on what is it that you're going to be the best in your world at. What are you best at? Identifying that. And then I think the way you diversify is to think in terms of team development. I'm your host, Dane Sanders, and I want to welcome you to Converge. Charles, welcome to Converge, the business of creativity. Thanks, Dane, for having me. Uh, It's a privilege to be on your uh, podcast. Well, I'm really pleased that you're here, and I, I'm so excited just because of the serendipity of how this all came about. Right. <laughs> uh, so for those of you who, uh, there's no way you guys could know, I was recently at an event uh, here in Southern California where I uh, was there for, it was a major conference, and I was there to, to meet some folks. And while I was waiting for the meeting to happen, I actually needed a place to plug my computer in, I think. <laughs> and uh, I, I picked a table and... Uh, sat next down to this guy and he, he was very kind and said, yeah, yeah, sure. Plug in, whatever. And we start starting up a conversation and, and, uh, it was really intriguing. I was just like, who is this guy? This is amazing. <laughs> and then all of a sudden uh, he goes, yeah, I got to go for a second. He gets up and it was one of those conferences where like it's a massive campus. And I look up on the screen and I'm like, oh my gosh, he's on stage like right now in front of thousands of people. And, uh, and I had this very kind of really, uh, idiotic moment where I thought, yeah, I, I really am out of the loop here. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, it was fun how it came full circle. We got a chance to reconnect on a number of occasions. Now we have some common connections too. And I got to know Charles Lee a little bit and not only did I feel embarrassed, but I realized that there was just so much more context to what you bring to the table, Charles. And all those things I said in the intro are true. Uh, you do run these great 
business. Well, no, it's true. You do you do a ton of stuff all over the place, but that just didn't happen overnight. You built that over time. So why don't you share a little bit about um, what you do and how you got there? Yeah. So I, I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. My parents um, both uh, were successful in the restaurant industry, and uh, they really innovated a lot in and in the food space. And having been brought up in that, I've always been in an environment where you take a concept and you go execute it, especially as immigrants. I was I was five when um, I was originally born in Korea and came to the U.S. when I was five years old. And, and to see my parents go from absolutely nothing to really being really successful in what they do, I learned a lot. I guess I, I caught a lot about what it takes to scale a business. And so when I got into college, I really didn't know what I want to focus on. I actually ended up studying philosophy in grad school. And uh, while doing that was really playing around with the internet and trying everything from social experiments like flash mobs to starting nonprofit organizations to uh, running a couple of small businesses and and everything I touched seemed to work. Um, in fact, it worked so well that I actually went into therapy because I felt like I was doing a thousand different things. And and my therapist basically pointed out the fact that at the core of what I did was I could take concepts and execute it well. And I realized, you know, it was it just had become my greatest strength had been in my blind spot. I just assumed everybody else knew how to do it. But the more I wrote about it, the more I spoke on it, I realized it was a common pain point for a lot of people is that a lot of people have ideas, but unfortunately, a lot of those ideas literally end up on the grave, in, in the grave. And so I just created a company, and our company basically is a brand innovation company, and we sit between uh, executive strategy and business design and creative execution with a strong emphasis on helping people actually execute their concepts. It's funny, when you, when you were talking about that idea of uh, ideas going to the grave, I was yeah. immediately reminded of Todd Henry in, yeah. in his book, uh, Die Empty, yeah. uh, and he's a guest of Converge, and, and I've known him for a little while now. He's someone who who talks extensively about this idea of like what is the most expensive or most valuable real estate in the world, and of course he came up with the idea, mm-hmm. or someone did, of the cemetery. Of course, is yep. the most valuable because that's where all great ideas go to die if they don't get actualized. And I wonder if you could just comment a little bit on that that notion yeah. of of ideas unfortunately not finding their full and true home. Yeah, I mean, if you look at different statistics on whether it's uh, uh, kind of the microcosm of specific innovation projects within companies, most of those projects fail statistically. Um, I think some put it as high as sometimes 90% of innovation projects fail within companies. But at a just kind of a more public level, I think it's that a lot of people do. They, you know, they have plenty of books that they've never written, songs that were never recorded, you know, organizational concepts that could have impacted communities. But people love talking about it. And I think in talking about it, uh, sometimes, you know, it's you've probably already noticed, but in areas of like different areas of like neurosciences, it's just that if you keep talking about something, it almost tricks your brain into thinking you're actually doing something about the concept. And it actually lowers your probability that you're actually going to do something with it. So, yeah, it's it's just a common notion is that for multiple of reasons, people can hold on to a concept but fail to execute. And, you know, it can be cultural dynamics. It can be uh, specific work context. It can be the actual lack of process or clarity or uniqueness of the concept in development. So there's kind of a myriad of things. But the reality is the majority of people don't execute on their ideas. It's funny that that idea in particular, ideas about ideas, this is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> the, the idea that 
you shouldn't talk about your ideas because that actually might get in the way of them yeah. coming to fruition. I know that's a that's a passion of yours, but it's ironic given that we're in a sense talking about ideas right now. Yeah. But but, but you mean it in a particular kind of way that, that I mean you have to you have to develop ideas. You have to kind of put them through their paces to make them excellent. Yeah. But how, how do you do that in a way where it doesn't kind of scratch that neuroscience itch yeah. and, and it actually debilitates you? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it may be like, and most of the times when we work with different companies or specific uh, leaders or influencers, or maybe someone who's an entrepreneur, is that little acts like literally, and this may sound so basic, but you'd be surprised how many people don't write their idea down somewhere or type it in somewhere. It's really a verbal commitment to something, and and, and what it does is it, it you know it limits you because if you're talking to somebody about a concept and you like to make it better, sure you can verbally refine it, but if there isn't a point of reference, like you have it somewhere on paper, it's somewhere something that people can literally type their thoughts into, uh, it's going to be hard to make it better or more refined. And, and I think ideas by nature, you know, the idea you start with is rarely the idea you end up with, but when you're talking about it, you can add a lot of fluff to it. But at the end of the day, the core concept, if you want it to be developed, you have to start documenting. And that seems to be a common trait of, you know, what I call in my book, idea makers versus just idea lovers is people who get stuff done have this real great practice of documenting their progress. So if you're an artist, it may not be always words, but whatever the case may be, to document it, reflect upon it, assess it, make it better, learn from it. It's kind of like that whole lean model. You know, it's not a forever process. It's more like, hey, let's quickly reiterate what we already have and make it better incrementally, but let's do it quickly uh, with the least amount of resistance possible. And let's create a lean process in which we can get stuff done. Again, you're, you're reminding me of so many mantras that different yeah. places leverage. Like I think of some ex Googlers who I've talked with over the years, who've told me, yeah, the, everyone knew it was iterate or die. If you didn't iterate, yeah. you just had no, you had no shot. And I love how you're connecting the dots between the concept and writing that concept down. I'm a big, I'm passionate about the notion of writing as a technology that's underutilized. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's one of those technologies that probably won't get interrupted anytime soon. But what I'm hearing you also say, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, is that in t going through the, the process of writing it out, that actually is the kind of task that moves a concept forward in contrast with going to a cocktail party and talking endlessly about your potential. Yeah that has a debilitating impact. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's that simple act that I think everybody knows they ought to do, but for whatever reason, maybe, um, you know, you, you have all of these reasons why you don't, you just assume, oh, well, I know it, so I can probably share it. Uh, but in, in, in kind of the real world, that's not good enough. Uh, if you want to get, whether it's as serious as getting funding or getting other people on board, on-ramped into the project, whether it's paid or volunteer, uh, there has to be some type of rallying point in documentation uh, that's really core to idea execution. And I'm sure some listeners to this are going, yeah, of course. But uh, once again, a lot of people don't take that initial step. And that's why often they get stuck and they end up in kind of whether internal arguments with themselves uh, about why it's not going to work. 
uh, or they are focusing too much energy on making the idea better instead of spending the time clarifying the concept, identifying what makes it unique, and then identifying which market it's really for, and then doing some initial exploration into that market. And is some of that exploration testing? Yeah, most definitely. And I think it's kind of like, you know, especially tech, I think the technology space has really taught us this in the realm of ideas is that, you, you know, it's, it's not necessarily even the ones with the most features that win, but it's really like, what is the core deliverable and, and uh, how do you prototype it quickly enough and allow users to kind of speak into it, take more ownership of it. So I'm not talking about like, if you have like 5% of an idea, let's go prototype it. But if you're like, you know, at 70%, the concept, core concept is there, my encouragement often is prototype it, test it, tell your quote-unquote tribe, as, you know, Seth Godin would say, uh, speak into it, grab some ownership around it, help you become better. And I think people nowadays are kind of in the mindset, like, our world is more like Google Docs than it is, like, set business plans we put up on our wall, you know, or a mission statement we put on the wall. Our, our world is changing so quickly that it has to be kind of with a posture like we're not there yet. In fact, I don't think your customers expect you to be there yet. They want you uh, to kind of invite them in at some level to make the product or the features better. Wow. There's so much in what you're, you're talking about. I mean, even the notion of, of collaboration yeah. is again, one of those powerful tools, but also could be debilitating. I mean, when, if the wrong people are getting together at the wrong yeah. time in the wrong way, then it creates this real roadblock. Whereas if you bring the right people together in the right way, then it seems like it, it's like this super freeway that takes yeah. you further. Uh, how do you assess that idea of collaborate, like the when, who, how parts of collaboration? And, and that's, maybe that's too big of a question, but in, right. broad, in broad strokes, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think at the core of collaboration is in order to find the right people, you have to create some type of internal process through which you decide whether or not you're going to collaborate with someone. So a few th ways to look at it is I love the word collaboration. It has the word labor in it. So it, it is work. And I think it's not just like, hey, we can help each other out. But uh, some of the things that I encourage people with is like, you know, start with some clear, expert, uh, you know, expectations um, so if I'm meeting with somebody and they want to collaborate, there's all different types of levels and depths of collaboration. You know, some people may think, hey, I just want to collaborate in thought and refine each other's thinking. Others may say that, no, I want to collaborate within departments that exist in an existing company. Or some will say, we want to be a company-to-company -company collaboration. Others, you know, company-to-network collaboration. And it kind of grows. And, and each layer of collaboration adds a whole layer of complexity. So what I encourage people to do is if you are looking for people to collaborate with, have some clear expectations of what type of person you're actually looking for. And once again, have some of that in writing. So if you you know, go have coffee with somebody with a potential, you know, whether it's partnership and depending on what you mean by partnership, after the meeting, send a quick email that lays out what you heard and what maybe the win might be with both people participating in collaboration and then what next tangible steps might be and allow that. And you don't have to collaborate with just with people that totally agree with everything that you're doing, but if you can be clear it really broadens the, the playing field of who you get to collaborate with in which areas of collaboration. So it's about a lot of clarity, a lot of being transparent and upfront about what we're expecting, what we're bringing to the table. 
And that way you can really kind of get to the point of kind of cutting to the chase to say, is this really going to work or not? And sometimes it's no, even with, you know, there's pros and cons with working with friends, but even with friends that you have great relationship with, a business engagement may not be, uh, you know, a good path to go down because maybe the expectations are not that, that clear. So it's, it's kind of understanding and kind of navigating. And like, you know, Dane, a lot of businesses relationship, right. And so managing personalities and, and how people work in normal circumstances versus stressful circumstances, it's kind of understanding those dynamics of collaboration. Back to the Google conversation, uh, you know, in a flat hierarchy like that, that reminds mm -hmm. me of companies that try to collaborate with each other, or maybe solopreneurs that are trying to collaborate with each yeah. other. Uh, there isn't really a, a declared boss. Yeah, I think some of that is literally sitting down and generally speaking, someone has to at least facilitate or take some sense of lead, even if it's in kind of that facilitation role. Uh, I found generally it's hard to be 50-50 on anything. Uh, nor do most practical like thriving businesses always expect it to be some type of 50-50 partnership. So I think setting some of the ground rules and identifying what's success for each group as well as collectively for the project, I think getting some of those things down, even if it's not a formal document, uh, depending on your depth of collaboration, uh, is the saying, this is what we're actually striving for. This is how we've both mutually agreed would be successful success in our eyes. This is a general sense of how we will get there, and this is how we will manage the project's execution. So those may be some practical tools to help frame uh, a potential in collaboration. Super practical. I mean, it's funny. I'm The more you talk, the more I'm reminded I, I have an attorney. He is such a, when I say lawyers, I think some people kind of get concerned, but this guy is a real consultant. Like he just uh -huh. speaks in plain language and I remember the first time I went to him to do a partnership, I, me and a buddy had, we owned two or three companies together. And the first thing when we went to incorporate with him, my attorney says, uh, okay, so how are you guys going to break up? <laughs> and he goes, because you will, there will be a day. Yeah. And, and it sounds like you guys want to be our friends. Now you want to be friends later. This is the most important conversation you can have right now. And I remember thinking like at first, like how inconvenient and man, he doesn't believe in what we're doing. And yeah. then I realized, no, it's like some of the best advice of, getting clarity on yep. on the rules. And once we got clear on it, it was amazing how easy working together was and how easy it was when we did break up and move yeah. on. Uh, it's, it's, and that's what I'm hearing you kind of call people to is just get clarity. Yeah. Even if it's awkward. And I know sometimes, especially like in your case, you're working with a friend, uh, it can get awkward, but you know, in, in the past when I've, I've definitely made some mistakes in partnership, that's kind of led to some clarity here, uh, is that being upfront and having some of those, you know, seemingly, you know, and they could be uncomfortable conversations, but knowing that everybody has each other's best interest in mind at the end of the day, that you want to keep your relationship, regardless of where the partnership goes intact as friends, at least. And potential like you can loop around in the future and do something again together. So if you kind of set it in that framework, I think most people want clarity. Um, and you, you know, if you're involved in something like that, be the one that kind of initiates some of that to get things on the table. And everybody's going to be better for it in the long run. You mentioned earlier things like lean innovation and mm -hmm. uh you know i immediately think of 
like you mentioned earlier, the tech space and yeah. lean startup principles and minimal viable products. And for listeners, yeah. many of them will understand what I'm talking about. Many of them will want to go Google those things. Mm-hmm. But the idea of iterating quickly, getting something that's viable as fast as possible to market, not just to make money, but to learn, and then yeah. assuming you're going to come up with new versions. And even just the concept of innovation, um, the idea of you know all of that. Yeah. The, the dense textbooks that people kick around of, uh, you know, innovator solution, innovator's dilemma, yeah. uh, you know, Steve Jobs thought it was really important to read that. So now everyone started reading it. A lot of people didn't understand it. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and yet in the middle, and maybe just, if I could just boil it down for a second, it speaks to a little bit of what I mentioned at the, at the beginning of the show, which is those moments when you, uh, you wake up and you think I have a great idea. Yeah. And, and at least for me, for many years, I found myself, discouraged when that happened. And then I remember one time I came across a, this great little cl- video clip online with Ira Glass from This American Life where he basically says, hey, if you have this phenomenon happening for you, it's not bad news, it's good news. It means that you have good taste. You might just not have any good skills yet. And yeah. you need to go find those skills. But I, I, with all of these conversations around innovation, I know for me, I'm often left with, wow, if I can't, if I can't create the next Tom's shoes or if I can't yeah. create the next you know, like major breakthrough, then, you know, what's the point? Uh, and I, I think sometimes I overthink it. Like I just make it too complex. Like I have to hit a right. grand slam home run in the world series or I'm a total failure. Right. And I, you work with so many different companies and businesses and I'm sure this dynamic comes up all the time. How do you coach people through yeah. the process of, of refining their concept without them getting discouraged? Yeah. Great point. I think, you know, maybe I could take a step back and describe what I understand innovation to be. And there are different ways of kind of defining innovation, but for me, like innovation at the core has like two main components. One is if you're going to be innovative, you have to kind of develop some skill set and the ability to actually identify a legitimate problem to solve. Because innovation is really about problem solving. So one part is really how can you clarify what the problem is? Is it a real problem? Do, is there a mass of people that actually want a solution for that? And the second portion is where there's definitely elements of creativity involved, but creativity is not the same thing as innovation in my mind, but designing an appropriate solution to that problem. Uh, and, and part of the process of like clarifying the problem is you understand which market could actually use the solution you're creating. And then when you design a solution, it, it should feel really intuitive. And that's where, you know, a lot of the lean process I think works and, and it, it kind of works between those two worlds. But the way that I'd encourage it, people is if, if you are actually solving a legitimate problem in our world, there's a high probability that there's a group of people that would want your solution. And so the idea is how do you get there and how do you get there with, you know, at least the prototype of a solution to get feedback from the right people. And if your target is like the entire world, then I think it becomes very difficult to test it out. Mm -hmm. But if you can get a little bit focused to say, maybe these are the three main buckets of the types of potential audiences we'll have for this product, let's test it out. And I think in testing it out and whether it's just at a concept level or if you're actually selling specifically a product, maybe doing some type of a prototype of this product, or if you're offering like you're a consultant offering a service, maybe packaging some elements of your service that you can test out, maybe at a lower cost, maybe with a group of people to really test it, maybe write a white paper around it. But you can you can do it. You don't have to launch with everything all at 
you know, at the same time, you could almost like, and people will like it. You invite a small group of people to test out what you're developing. I think they will give them a sense like, man, that, that is interesting. That would, and allow them to offer some honest feedback. So it's not necessarily a highly incentivized type of environment where they're prone to give you more positive like feedback. <laughs> but if there's some neutral environments in which you can test products, um, you know, th- that would be kind of the way to go. But innovation, once again, is about problem solving. So it takes time. You're absolutely right. And I love the video you're referencing to, um, to and, and, you know, he, he even talks in that video uh, that it just took time. It just took, but you work at, really hard at it. And in, in the case, I think he was talking about storytelling. That's right. You, yeah, you work really, really hard at it. And over time, it starts to click. But it's those countless hours of working hard to refine it, that constant reiteration that gets you to a place that ultimately delivers something of value uh, to your customer. This this next area I want to chat about, it's full of landmines. Uh, so, <laughs> so, <just> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> this is why I'm asking the questions and then hiding. Uh, so, I, you know, this podcast is about the business of creativity or the creativity business. So whether mm-hmm. you're making stuff or you're making money from your stuff or maybe both, it's interesting to me in my, you know, my background as a trade is I'm a photographer and a writer. And both of those industries have in many ways been commoditized by digital. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, I just saw this pretty amazing trailer. It just screened, I think, at South by, I think it was called unsound or something like that. It reminds me of press pause play. It's just mm-hmm. this kind of conversation, uh, extended conversation with really thoughtful musicians in this case around how, you know, the unintended consequences of how awesome digital is, uh, where, you know, why can't musicians expect to make money from making music anymore? Yeah. And, uh, especially the little guys, like if you're not, um, Radiohead, uh, the idea of like, you know, pay whatever you want for music is that really a viable way to do a career? And I know this is, it's tough because there's a whole spectrum of perspective on this, right? Yeah. Um, And my own bias just to declare it is if the, if you want a viable strategy, it's probably smart to diversify your skill set and not expect that the way people have made money in the past is going to be a guarantee or an entitlement. But, but that said, given the era that we're in and given what you just shared about, you know, it is hard work to bring anything to market. And really, as creatives and as business people, we're wearing so many different hats. And if, if skill diversification is critical, how do you coach people around what skills they should be identifying to develop? And then once they develop that skill set, since there isn't any kind of guaranteed way you're going to make money from any skill set these days, you know, so I guess first, how do you pick the skills? And then second, mm-hmm. once you have certain amounts of skills, are there ways to thoughtfully consider how you leverage those? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm kind of reminded like nowadays we're living in such an era of there's such great potential for collaborating well. And you're right. It's hard to, I am definitely not a proponent that you just kind of become a wandering generality, you know, have, right. have 20 things going. And that's one of the reasons I kind of put everything under one company uh, for me personally is you know, you, you, you almost become, you know, I think it was Zig Ziglar. I know Seth Godin refers to it sometimes as well as, is that you want to be a meaningful specific, not a wandering generality. Right. And so 
picking up the necessary skills, you can look at it a couple of ways. There are probably a couple of core skills that are really deeply embedded into who you innately are. But um, so it's it's the things that probably really fill you. And maybe you're an artist. Elements of creativity, discipline around creativity may come natural to some people. And it's, it's to really hone in on what is it that you're going to be the best in your world at? What are you best at? Identifying that. And then I think the way you diversify is to think in terms of team development. Is And I think that's hard for especially like freelancers to do sometimes. But it's really extending your and leveraging really kind of the network around you. And this is where I think networking is absolutely important in our day and age. And not just networking with like-minded people, but I do things like I always try to go to an event that's outside of my profession. Just to kind of hear and listen to hear how others problem solve. And so like to leverage the skills of others, you kind of have to force yourself to be in relatively unfamiliar sometimes or uncomfortable situations where there's other skill sets at work. And for me, I don't mind. Like I have no barriers to asking people questions about how they do stuff and, you know, what is it? And I I will plead ignorance because most of the time I am ignorant (laughs) and say, tell me a little bit, you know, about how you approach development. Tell me a little bit about like why you think HTML5 works well, right? Or why you there's these evolving languages, or maybe in the area of like business, talking to people who are at a much different level than I am and running a business and asking, well, as a small business owner, what are some key principles I should be mindful of in scaling? And just kind of keep digging into those. And then when you find people that you feel are legitimate experts, I try to create enough budget and time to kind of bring them on board, either as consultants or extended team members. And for me, that means, yeah, I make probably less in the short run, but in the long run, I'm going to be far more profitable because I have the right people on the team. And since we live in a very like... um, kind of a mobile world where people don't always have to be in the same office. I mean, you can have a robust team of people you turn to even as a freelancer um, that you are building it, but it's not just outsourcing. And that's one thing that we're careful of as a company is we want to make sure that every vendor we work with, there are elements of that relationship for most of our vendors is that we want to make them a better, better in their field. So sometimes, you know, if I subcontract work, at times, um, I will invest in that subcontractor if we have a building relationship where I'll sponsor them to go to specific events. I'll bring in a thought leader in a space and bring some of our subcontractors together. So it, it's kind of the idea, like, that way I feel like I can leverage the skills of others where I'm not the one investing in their lives. I bring a friend who happens to be a great you know, world-recognized designer to work with some of our subcontracted folks as well as our internal team. So it's it's kind of like I think that's the way that I'm diversifying and knowing that there are a couple of things I do really well and I need to focus on that. And how do I tap into the expertise at a price, at a cost, knowing that in the long run that's going to make everybody better. So that's kind of been my mentality as it relates to collaboration and and and, and working with multiple people. Well, I, I already know as I'm talking that there will be people going, okay, how do I get this guy yeah. on my team? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and let me tell you guys the cheap way to get Charles on your team. Uh, go buy his book. Uh, it's called yeah. Good Idea Now What? And you can find it everywhere. But if you want to go to charlestlee.com, you can find 
that and a whole bunch more. Also, if you're a small company and you're looking to take good ideas and make them unbelievable, not actually unbelievable, incredibly believable, but remarkable, go to theideation.com. Um, I don't want to end the conversation just yet, but I want to make sure you guys don't lose the plot. If, if, if this conversation is inspiring things for you and you want to take these ideas deeper, these are great places to do it. Is there any other place I should mention, Charles? No, those are great. And um, yeah, I appreciate even the mention. I had no idea you were going to do that. Well, <laughs> it's important. And <laughs> candidly, I, I'm, I'm just really drawn in. I, I think, like even what you're just saying about, I, well, let me back up. I was in a conversation uh, at an event not too long ago with Brian Clark of Copy Blogger. And uh, I was basically asking him some questions about, you know, in this world of content where everybody comes up with these ideas. And and even just a moment ago, as you were talking, uh, you mentioned Zig Ziglar and Seth Godin. Yeah. We both have, you know, a common um, respect and uh, at least I'll just for myself, I'll say respect and also uh, yeah. fanboy crush on Seth Godin. <laughs> um, there's so many, in a sense, ideas that when good people rally around them, they, they, they share them in common. It's almost like a brain trust that we, yeah. you know, and anyways, I was in this conversation with Brian Clark and I said, you know, what about this information glut, right? Like, let's say I'm making an information product online. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what, what's the point? I mean, Seth Godin already said it like 12 times in, in clever ways. And there's no chance of doing it like at that level. And Brian's response was, well, we decided the copy blogger years ago that there is no new content. Mm -hmm. But there's always new context. You can always frame up an idea yep. in a way that is unique to your perspective. And for me, that really unlocked a lot. And I'm wondering, especially given how you and I have so many common, it seems like common influences and people yeah. that we respect, when you run up against this this kind of notion, just on a personal level, where you're yeah. like, you know, what what do I do with this? Because I came up with the idea, but so did somebody else who I really respect. Yeah. Um, and it's it the context is yours, but the content is common. How do you yeah. how do you go about bringing that to market and and feeling great about it? Yeah, I I think the reality is even though we are in many ways connected, um, just kind of in the online world, if you will, which is pretty much most of the world. Um, the reality is is that it's kind of like the concept plus the person who brings the concept plus the context or the environment in which that concept is introduced that can change everything. It's kind of like sometimes, you know, say, Dane, you enter a room and somebody else could have kind of shared the same core idea, but in a different kind of way, the audience may have not gotten it. Maybe they were mm -hmm. distracted by the way they were presenting, the, the words they were using, maybe the way they were dressed or whatever the case may be. And then you come along and you're able to rearticulate the core concept and build upon it and gives life to it in the way that only you can, then it becomes viable for maybe some people in that room. Maybe for others, they still don't get it. So I think there's always, like, if it's a good idea and you add the right person and that person's influence in a specific vertical of influence, then it still becomes powerful. So, like, you know, when I go into corporations, I would assume everybody's listening to people like Seth and Zig Ziglar and, of course, you right, know, all these guys. Right. But that's not the case. Right. And I think there's enough room and space in the market to bring ideas that's uniquely you. And yet the core concept is a concept that probably has existed for years, if not centuries, you know. Mm. Uh, but I think what the world needs is people who can interpret and apply and execute, if you will, these great, great core 
you know, philosophies of life or business and then make it tangible for them. Yeah. And so I almost feel like sometimes, you know, I may not always be the originator of a great idea, but I sure want to be a great translator of it and a great model of how to implement that into a specific context. And therefore I bring value to that specific group. And so I would encourage people, it's okay. It's, it's like most of, if not all of our ideas have been shared before somewhere. But the question is, is like, who's your market or your you know, tribe if you use a Godinism? Or if you, well, who is that group of individuals that need you specifically to help them understand why that concept is so meaningful for their own environment? So let's flip to the other side of the equation really quickly. And yeah. uh, and I know uh, folks uh, who have partners, spouses, whatever, can relate with this. Those moments where you have been saying something to your significant other for years, <laughs> they don't get it. I know where you're going it. with this. Yeah. Of course. And then someone else says it. And like, you're like, are you kidding me? Like yeah. 18 years I've been saying that, and now you get it? Like, And so those moments where... I mean, I can only imagine how many times I have unintentionally and unconsciously ripped off Seth Godin and gotten yeah. credit for it, right? And of course, we try to give credit where credit's due, and I mean, we're even in this conversation, we're tripping over ourselves trying to give credit to everybody we can think of. Yeah. Um, but there are moments where you know you you legitimately framed it up, and it seems like somebody took it, um, if that's even an, even possible in this age. How do you how do you coach yourself through those moments in a constructive yeah. way? Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, and I think that that's that kind of thinking is along the lines of when people ask, like, well, you know, what if someone steals your idea and profits from it or takes credit for it? And uh, my general rule of thumb is, like, it's it's one thing to have the idea. It's another thing to actually be able to execute it. So even if someone has your concept and are verbalizing and may get credit for it, but if you're the executor of it, they're still going to be behind, if they, especially if they got it from you. Now, if it's a general concept that somebody else had before you did, then then you're stressing over um, nothing significant because it wasn't <laughs> from right. you, right? right. But right. If, if it was from you, um, I would say don't worry about it because, I mean, that's what you do as like a thought, quote unquote, leader or first into a space is you have the advantage because someone else can come along and go, hey, that's a great idea. I'm actually going to mimic it and do my own version. You know, you know, it's... It's like, hey, I yogurt selling yogurt, frozen yogurt's been a craze. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to call it pink berry. I'm going to call it my berry, or you know, wh whatever the case may be. But it's the execution that really matters. So, man, if you can come behind me and take my idea and execute it better than I, wh who am I to say that you shouldn't do it? Yeah. Because you actually made it better. Yeah. And I'm. It's up to me to make my concept better and more contextualized to my audience. Yeah. Um, but it's going to be hard just because someone has your idea doesn't mean they can do it. And I, that's, that's kind of a little bit of freeing, you know, where I can share it. Um, by the time I share it, I've worked through it. I've toiled through it, blood, sweat, and tears around it and go ahead, try to execute it. You're probably going to be a little bit behind if it's my idea or if it started from our company or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Um, uh, actually I had an interaction not too long ago with, with Seth. Uh, where uh, he was on the show and, and I sent him um, uh, a kind of an upgraded version of our interview. I interviewed him a while ago and then then retooled it and sent it back to him and was really happy with how it came out. And I remember his response. He, like in, in all cases, I'm leveraging his brand, right? Like I'm, yeah. 
uh, when people see Dane Sanders and Seth Godin, they're coming for Seth. And I, I'm not offended or hurt. In fact, I'm affirmed because I get to be there too. Yeah. A- and, um, but I loved his gracious response because it was almost as though he was saying like, oh, he's, I'm not sure if I said his response, but he basically just said, you just, you keep raising the bar. You keep yeah. raising the bar. And I've known him for a while. So like, I feel like he has context for how bad I was before. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and then I'm moving in the right direction. And I, the spirit of what he said, it seemed to communicate to me the sense of like, um, look, if the idea is getting out there, that's the point. Yep. If the idea could change something for somebody somewhere and it came through your voice versus anybody else's, who cares? That's that's good news, right? And yep. you're raising the bar. And I, I wonder if that's a better metric of, you know, yeah. heading in the right direction, more of a center set mentality as yep. opposed to either you did it or you didn't or you get credit or you don't or, right. you know, how are you contributing? Would you agree? Yeah, I think at the core of what you just mentioned, yeah, I, I would totally agree. And, you know, especially for those who are now nowadays creating ideas that have some layer of social impact and making people's lives better. I mean, if it's for the greater good of people while making a profit, for example, right, yeah. Uh, it, yeah, we should be able to cheer on quote unquote, our com- competitors or recently somebody referred to kind of competitors as uh, frenemies, you know? <laughs> right, right. Uh, so it's it's like if it's something that's bigger i mean most ideas that we pursue are bigger than any one company anyway so i feel like that's like in in the sense that yeah i do want more people kind of in this space there's plenty of work i mean art like i know our company can't handle all of the requests that come in and so if there's other people who can innovate brands well man, I, I would applaud them and cheer them on. And, and sure, from time to time, we may lose business because of, you know, different bids and things like that. But in the long run, it's it's better. It's making us better because it's causing us to say, hey, what can we do in our process that's better, but that better serves our clients? And so uh, that kind of healthy competition, I think, is really good. Now, I mean, of course, if you get into just slandering and, and <laughs> you know, totally throwing mud at other, you know, quote-unquote competitors, then I think... But in most cases, that tells you more about the company doing it than the company they're criticizing. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, there's a bigger game, isn't there? Like, yep. if if we can, <laughs> if we uh, can avoid these very kind of human comparison envy stuff, yep. it does seem like we sure could get a lot more done. Yep. Well, as we're finishing up, Charles, I just uh, as somebody who, you know, you you both come up with concepts, you make ideas real. You empower other people, both through consulting and coaching, speaking, of course, writing. Uh, and you also do it for your own stuff, like whether you're working for another company or your own business, mm-hmm. you're, you're, in this sense, iterating all the time and, and taking things to the next level. If you had like one, you know, you're sitting down for coffee, and this has happened, I'm sure, thousands of times for you. You're sitting down with coffee with somebody, and I'm actually going to mention three different people. Mm-hmm. And you have like a 20-second soundbite for each one. I'm wondering what you might say. So... For fun, we're going to pretend like uh, I have these archetypes that I, I work with all the time in my head around a product I'm bringing to market uh, around writing. And it's just encouraging the idea of being systematic and thoughtful in the entire ecosystem of publishing anything. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I have these archetypes in my head. So the first guy, his name is Charlie, okay? Mm-hmm. And Charlie, uh, he thinks he's a writer, but he doesn't actually write. He's somebody who, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of Charlies in the world, mm-hmm. but, but he just feels guilty about never blogging. He, he has this great American novel he thinks he has in his head. Someday it'll happen, but for whatever reason, there's too much pain between A and B, and he hasn't, he hasn't 
gone for it yet. He doesn't actually have a habit of writing. Mm-hmm. The second person is a woman named Beth, and Beth is a small business owner. She knows that writing is important for her to create content online, to kind of ground her concepts for business, her models, how she's going to mm-hmm. go get work done, even good content marketing. But she's so busy getting yeah. so much done. She never gets a chance to actually go do that critical but not urgent work. Yeah. Then you have this third character, and her name is Anne. And Anne's actually had success. She actually wrote a book and was really successful. Mm-hmm. But it was such a painful process, just formatting in Microsoft Word, let alone working with an editor, that yeah. she wrote it four years ago, and it was a binge and purge experience. And now she like is too tired. And the idea of going again as a pro just sounds daunting. So when you think of this kind of like beginner, middle, and veteran perspectives, at least kind of one narrow angle on these folks. And they want to go, they want to go do something new, whether it be writing or a new business or a new concept. What would you say to each of them in those different stages? Yeah, I think for the beginner, I would encourage him to actually join some type of writing group and think in terms of developing his skill set. It sounds like he has, Charlie has some ideas. So I would encourage Charlie to get into a system where maybe it's through a course or maybe it's through some type of program where they can become a better writer. Uh, if he is more verbal in nature, maybe, you know, I would push back and say, do you think you're a writer or do you, are you somebody who has good ideas about books? And if it's like um, the latter, I would say, you know, you should save up some money and hire some, you know, transcription services mm. and try to verbalize some of the concepts, at least the core concept of the book that you've probably been already telling a whole bunch of friends. So we can get that on paper. I think that'd be a good tangible step for second for Beth, who's busy. I'm totally in her shoes <laughs> uh, running a small business. Uh, there are some services content wise out there. You know, uh, recently I came across stuff like repost, right? There's all these different um you can pay for some of, relief, some of this pain where you can find great articles as well as maybe for Beth, you know, and maybe spending half a day with somebody uh, who's familiar with the way that online content strategy is done. And I'm sure she has somebody in her network that kind of does this or a company that does it. It's worth it. Once again, hire them to spend a few hours helping her think about a frame and how feasible it is. And, you know, either through some type of other external third party service, you can probably get some good content for a business's website and so forth. Uh, and then for Anne, that kind of feeling of, you know, this daunting task of writing another book, you know, I, I would definitely uh, encourage her to maybe collaborate on a project to kind of maybe keep her motivated and have somebody else who can, also help drive the project as well. So whether she is a primary writer or becomes a co-writer, I think that may change kind of the dynamic of that process. And uh, find that person may take a little bit of time, but I think helping her and reminding her of what the book's impact. I think sometimes, you know, authors forget or writers forget that their book does impact people. And every so often I'm encouraged, like, I think it's a daunting task to write another book. Um, so I'm not like you, Dane. <laughs> so it, in that area, I mean, I love writing, but pursuing a book project was a little bit different and I needed it to be structured a particular way. But if I were to go back and, and, and think about, you know, the moments where I've thought about writing again, are those moments when I get emails from people who took the book and helped them launch a business. It kind of reminds me of like the good the book actually has done. So it may be more of focusing on not so much her skill set, but her motivation. 
and who that she needs to be surrounded by to continually stay motivated to finish it a second time. So uh, those are some things because it looks like early on Charlie is more of a skill set issue. Uh, Beth is more of a time issue where, where she might need some tools to get stuff done. But in Anne, it's definitely a motivation issue. And I focus on different points of motivation for her. This was episode 021 of Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. FastTrackCreative.com is our home where you'll find past episodes, our Better Together creativity community, and a ton of other resources for artists looking to make a difference with their creations. Music today provided by TripleScoopMusic.com. Sound as good as you look. Thanks to Anna Quaza at Acreative.co for her audio production. And a special thanks to Charles for being with us. Visit him at CharlesTLee.com. As usual, I want to thank you for spreading the word about the show. When you leave questions and comments on the site and rate us on places like iTunes, we recognize that you caring enough to do that sort of thing is a really big deal, and we are grateful. That's it for now. I'm Dane Sanders, and I'll see you here next time.